Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for our time together today to worship you. Come to the part now where we proclaim your word, proclaim the good news aloud, that our hearts may be refreshed by your truth, by your grace to us. May we grow from it. May we be encouraged, and above all, may your name be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. In this pulpit, one thing I'm not known for is brevity. So given our uh, abbreviated time this morning here, uh, I am going to get the flashing light from the back. So if I suddenly crash land my sermon, you know why. And we will simply have to pick up (laughs) where we left off um, next Lord's Day. So with that, let's jump right into it. Please open your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. The book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. And we will continue our study on, again, one of the most exciting things possible to the Christian. Chapter 3, I will start at verse 10 and I will read through verse 13. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13. Please follow along as I read. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. A good friend reminded me yesterday that You know, when you're struggling with what to preach, especially in circumstances like this, we draw our attention to what Jesus told Peter, the author of this book, three times. Feed my sheep. So that is the goal this morning. And I I figure this, what better way to feed the sheep than to simply recount the promises of God? It is difficult to find food more nourishing than to look at Scripture and refresh our minds and our hearts on the promises of God. We know that His promises are not failing. We know that His promises are new every morning, but they are a reflection of His great faithfulness and that the Word of God never comes, fails to come to pass. Scripture, I didn't realize this, but Scripture itself contains over 800,000 words and 7,000 of those verses in those words are promises, and not just any old promises, but promises that God has actually made to people. So God is not short on making promises, nor does He fall short of fulfilling them. Even a short cursory read of Scripture, if you just open your Bible anywhere, there's a good chance you're going to read a promise of God. Something that He simply declares that He will make come to pass. Whether that be for judgment or for blessing. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we realize that we are under grace. We are not under the curse of the covenant. And we can refresh our minds often on these blessings on these precious promises. Isaiah 40.31 is a good one. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. We have a promise there from God that He will give us strength. He will help us endure. While others are falling around about us, strengthened only by the flesh, we get our strength from God. And even though that is made specifically to 
Israel, we understand that we are recipients of that promise as well. The Lord continues to give us strength. And we don't doubt that word. How about Psalm 32.8? I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. There's another promise that God will continue to teach us. He will counsel us. And He cares for us. That His eye will be upon us. Precious promise. I love this one from John 16.33. He's a... Jesus is talking to His disciples. These things I have spoken to you so that in Me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, He says. I have overcome the world. Now what encouragement is that? To hear it from our Lord. He has overcome the world and we share that victory in Him. That is a promise that we live out even in the here and now. Such encouragement, such security, such grace in that statement. Even concerning judgment, reminded by Ezekiel 24.14, I, the Lord, have spoken. It is coming and I will act. Once the Lord has said it, no one can unsay it. The Lord's Word is sure, it is good, and it will always achieve its purpose. So whether you're a Christian living in the first century or living in the 21st century, when we consider all of these things, these promises and more, this is just a, a very small sample The question then becomes, what does the church have to fear and how can we fail to believe the Word of God which never fails in itself? We talk about these promises of God because this is exactly what Peter brings us to. He doesn't merely talk about a new heaven and a new earth, but it's a new heaven and new earth. Newness in reference to something. So when the first century church reads this, this isn't anything new. Peter, as is common to him, he draws from the Old Testament Scriptures. And then he says, here here is how they are being fulfilled right now. And this is a theme that, especially when we read all of the judgment language, all of the false teacher language in this book, we can easily miss out on a most important theme, and that is the theme of promise. Now back in the opening chapter, in verse 4, we read this, For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. Great. So that, there's more, so that by them, by what? By these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We are a people of the promise, and God's Word remains steadfast in our midst. And so when we come to verse 13 of chapter 3 of 2 Peter, we read this in opening, but according to His promise. So we automatically can conclude that the Word of God has something to say about this in an earlier occurrence in Scripture. There is a promise that has been made, and it refers to a new heavens and new earth. And we can settle on this for a while because the new heavens and the new earth is no passing fancy in Scripture. It is not a footnote. It is not a parenthesis. The new heavens and the new earth is one of the most significant themes of all of Scripture for it represents the summing up of all creation. Even more than this is that the new heavens and new earth point to the very goal of Christ's reconciling work on the cross. If you're familiar with Paul's epistle to the Colossians, in the opening chapter, verse 20, he says this, and for him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. 
Now, in this work of reconciliation, it is not simply limited to an individual basis, although certainly the gospel is preached so that individuals are reconciled to a holy God. But on a grander scale, this reconciling work made by Christ's blood is for the restoration and eventual exaltation of all of creation. That's why he says to reconcile all things to himself. And then, he, and then Paul goes on to explain whether things invisible, whether things visible, right? Powers, principalities. All of creation is going to be subject to this reconciling work, meaning that everything, whether invisible or visible, heaven and earth, angelic, human, demonic, whatever, this is exhaustive language that Paul is using. Everything will be put in its right place in relation to Jesus Christ, without exception. And so the new heavens and new earth represent the fulfillment or the culmination of this, even though we recognize that it is a current and ongoing work. For example, we see newness everywhere that the Lord Jesus Christ is honored. Whenever someone comes to the Lord in saving faith, we would say that person is a new creation. Paul tells that to the Corinthian church. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old is gone, new things have come. Period. Also a precious promise. One that is irrevocable as well. And so in the new heavens and new earth, we are able to see clearly how far the gospel goes, right? Many times, whether from the pulpit or in our Bible studies, we have warned against taking a truncated view of the gospel, namely that the gospel is only preached to make sure that people go to heaven when they die. But, in, but rather than just that, the gospel itself and its proclamation along with the new heavens and new earth represents a grand, sweeping, cosmic exaltation of all creation. The Lord Himself is making all things new. That is a promise. And we have to understand that clearly as something that is going on now. I forget the name of the philosopher that said this. It was a while ago, being a child of the 80s, but she said, Ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. Now, One of the mistakes we make in preaching the gospel, and I think sometimes we make this mistake initially in discipleship, is we make this very wide division between heaven and earth, and we act as if they are irreconcilable planes. But the fact is, is when, again, taking individual redemption as an example, when someone comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, heaven has met earth in a most spectacular and beautiful way. Wherever God is honored, Heaven has met earth. The local church is an expression of heaven being a place on earth. Do you know what that's worth? It's a very precious teaching. I think it does the church a disservice to act as though these things are completely separate. Separate in such a way as though they will never be overlapping. As though they will never be one. And we sing it in our hymns too. Jesus who died will be satisfied when earth and heaven are one. I sometimes wonder if we actually believe that that is the case. But I think we will find that that really is the point of the gospel. Is that heaven and earth will be one. Heaven will be a place on earth. And as we study this passage closely, and we're never going to get through everything in one Sunday, but I believe that Scripture demonstrates very clearly But that is the case. And so with that, we will focus 
on today this phrase in verse 13, according to His promise. Now remember, it was, it was one promise that Peter mentions in this chapter that people are mocking. Where is the promise of His coming? Chapter 3, verse 4. That is a promise that is related to this greater promise of a new heaven and new earth. They are definitely linked to one another. The promise that Christ would come in judgment upon Jerusalem and by extension, the old created order does not stand in isolation. It is connected intimately to this greater promise, and that is the promise of a new heaven and new earth. In fact, this emergence of a new heaven and new earth, the work of advancing and bringing to light and reality a new heaven and new earth is one that comes as a result of Christ judging the old creation. So for the new creation to emerge, all that is old and fading must be put away. It must be put, put down. And of course, the judgment on Jerusalem was just that. It was a judgment against all that stands against the new creation, and that judgment continues. And we've talked about the stoicheia, right? The elementary building blocks. Apostate teaching, right? What the law could not do. And we find that this judgment on Jerusalem even includes a judgment on paganism. Because the religion that Jerusalem was espousing was nothing better than paganism. It could not save. And it led into a self-righteousness that is nothing short of idolatry. But even over and above this, is that this judgment on the old creation is even a judgment upon the principalities and powers that oversaw that rebellion. That's why that verse in Colossians is so key. That when Jesus died, He made a public display of those principalities and powers. He subdued them. He conquered them. He exercised victory over them. And so we live in light of that conquering work. We live in light of that promise of a new heaven and new earth that was really begun at the cross with Christ's triumph over His enemies and then the resurrection where that payment in full was confirmed and solidified. Because we know that in the resurrection, God received and accepted Christ's perfect sacrifice. So, of course, this lends itself to understanding the new creation in quite a fashion. But let's begin. We talk about according to His promise. Now, there are a few texts that talk about this. According to His promise of a new heaven and new earth. Well, where do we see this explicitly? Well, we would go to, well, first of all, our Scripture reading for this morning. We would go to Isaiah chapter 65. That's where God's promise of a new heaven and new earth is announced. And then it also carries over into Isaiah 66, the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. This promise, this, because remember, Isaiah is announcing judgment upon apostate Judah. But, of course, in accordance to that promise, he will renew. He will bring about a new heavens and new earth. Judah does not have to fear that God has somehow forsaken his promises. Quite the opposite. In this promise of a new heaven and new earth, he renews his promise to his people. We also see this promise realized in the book of Revelation chapter 21. John receives that vision, and in the opening verse of Revelation 21, he sees this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, in the weeks ahead, we will, we will take time to actually unpack that because I think there's some very important details uh, that are going to be very helpful and, and necessary for us to understand not only the substance of the new heavens and new earth, but also what is the church's participation in advancing that new heavens and new earth. I'm of the mind that this is a gradual thing, that while there is a consummation that is involved where we experience the fullness of the new heaven and new earth, we experience it in part even today as we proclaim the gospel. But I bring all these passages up, especially that of Isaiah, to say that although this helps us understand the new heaven and new earth, that is not where it begins. To really understand the big picture of this and the promises of God related to them, we have to go back even farther. I mean, what's a sermon without including the book of Genesis? So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis. Because it is in Genesis where we see, first see this promise of the new heavens and new earth. Of course, the creation narrative is a beautiful picture of God's power, His work in creation, of the, the, the details, right? the, the immensity of it. And then in verse 26, if you want to draw your attention there, we read this. This is where it really begins. Before we go back to the before we go to the new heavens and new earth, we have to understand heaven and earth. In Genesis 1, 27 through 28, we read this. Or 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, so here's a command, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on earth. So here are some great responsibilities, great privileges, great honors that man, being an image bearer of God, will come to enjoy. This isn't a, a task to be approached with with some kind of reluctance. This is God calling man to rule creation as his vicegerent, meaning that man will rule over creation not with an absent God, but with the God present with him to, to give him wisdom and knowledge and favor while he does this work of subduing creation. So when we, when we take this narrative into account, this being an image bearer, right, which, make, which makes man fundamentally different from all the animals. It is mankind alone that bears the image of God, right? That we can fellowship with God in a way that is just foreign to the rest of creation, that we can know God in, in, in a unique way, that we can fellowship with Him, that we can live for His glory, that we can make His name great. So we ask ourselves in this text, what does God have in mind here in this image-bearing capacity of man. It is simply this, I believe, that man, under Adam's leadership, would rule the world as a faithful bearer of God's image. It's right there in the text. And then, of course, be fruitful and multiply. So there's a wider picture involved here. That the man and his wife would have children, but they would also, don't miss this, that they would also raise up faithful image-bearers. Why raise up faithful image-bearers? So that 
the entire world would faithfully bear the image of God. So man is not simply called here to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth without any kind of purpose, without any kind of reason. No, there is a reason behind this. Is that a faithful image bearer would also raise up other faithful image bearers so that, of course, the entire world would faithfully bear the image of God and thus the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That is the purpose of God creating earth. And so that all of the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And of course, with that, that the Lord God would dwell with man, that He would be their God, and He would be their people, and life would be as it should be. That is creation perfectly functioning. Of course, we call this concept shalom. In the English, we call it peace. But, it, but rather than just being some inner sense of tranquility that all is right with the world, it's more than that. It's when things indeed are right with the world. When things are functioning according to their God-given capacity. So when man is in fellowship with God, when he worships God, when he trusts in Jesus Christ, that man has shalom. That man has what we call the peace of God. And that was God's original intent for creation. Now what, do I, what I want us to avoid thinking, because this, this does get us off track, is that this intention of God never changed. Even after sin and death came into the world, God's intention for creation never changed. It never was altered. The plan goes on unabated. God did not have a plan B, so get that out of your mind. His desire for creation remains the same, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. But even looking at this, the creation of the world, the creation of man, God's commands to man, we see the old creation comes equipped with a series of important things, and we can categorize them thusly, at least. First, and most importantly, Creation comes equipped with a king. That king, above all, is God, the Lord. He is creator, he is ruler, and as Scripture says, our God is in heaven, he does what he pleases. And of course, with the presence of God, there comes a commandment, there comes a law. God states what his will is to Adam. And of course, on one hand, he says, Right? Fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. Okay. Rule over the fish of the sea. There's that command to rule. The command to subdue. The command to take dominion with God in His presence. And of course, that command is not an option. That is for man to obey, for man to fulfill as God enables and equips him. This here is a covenant issued with Adam. There were commands issued, of course. The other command being, see that tree in the middle of the garden? Don't eat from it. For the day you do so, you will surely die. You will die the death. These, these commands are disobeyed upon pain of death. And there's no question as to the severity and exactness of that. God is king. He is ruler. And of course, man rules under him to subdue the earth. So underneath the king, we have also a priest. We don't have to think about that, that even in the Garden of Eden, there was a priest. There was a servant in this garden to take care of it, to work the land, to till, 
to cultivate, to serve in what in this garden temple and rule over creation and the animals. It's typically a way of understanding where heaven touches earth. We know that as a temple. The garden was no different. Where Adam served the Lord, there was a garden. We would say also with that, that the garden was not, a, was not something that covered the entire earth. So yes, Adam was a priest. Serving as priests do in the presence of God. In that temple. So of course the idea was Adam as priest served in such a way that when he, he would raise up godly progeny and they would also fill the earth work the land, so that the idea being that the entire earth becomes a garden temple. That is to say, the earth is filled with the presence of the Lord. The earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That everywhere you look in creation, God's glory and presence are manifest because He is dwelling with His people. So in that sense, we have a priest, and Adam would serve with with his wife. And along with that priest, we also have a people. God has a people. From the very beginning of creation, God has called a people to Himself. We would say, well, who are those people? Pretty obvious. There were only two of them at the time, Adam and Eve. They were His people. And they would make babies and raise up other faithful people who would be members and servants of God's temple. Easy enough. Flows out of the priestly work. Then, of course, we have that purpose. Clear in the text. What is the purpose? Fill the earth, subdue it. Be a steward of it. Why? So that God's name would be glorified, right? So that the presence of the Lord would fill the earth. Because at this point in creation, don't miss this, where God's people are, there is God. God walking with them. We kind of get a taste of that in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve hid after they ate of the fruit of the tree. What happened? It describes God, the Lord God, walking in the garden of the cool of the day. We're kind of led to believe that that's not a novel thing that God does. That's something that the man and his wife are able to experience. They're able to live life naked and unashamed in the presence of God and, and be joyful recipients of, of His goodness and His love and care for them. So that leads us to the final one. The old creation comes equipped also with a presence. That presence, of course, being the presence of God. We talked last week a lot about The issue of holiness, right? Holiness reflecting a desire of God to dwell with man, to dwell with His people. So in this old creation, in this garden temple, we have the presence of God where He met with and fellowship with man. So once again, the temple motif, garden is a temple, man cultivates and works in this temple where heaven touches earth, so that the whole earth becomes a garden, and thus the whole earth is filled with His glory. So you're detecting this pattern yet. Everything I have just stated is still God's purpose for planet Earth. It is still God's purpose to dwell with man. We read that in, the, in these promises of the new heaven and new earth. That the dwelling place of God and man are one. Of course, we all know what happens after this. The serpent deceives the woman. She eats the fruit. Adam joins in it with her. He rebels, and thus the entire creation is shaken. And of course, it's easy to see the continual fallout to this day. This is why we preach the gospel, because we see in that work God making all things new. But in the meantime, there are remnants of creation that still rebel against the living God. And we see this perversion take place, especially in the, I mean, categorically. There's no mistaking it. 
Man is a king now unto himself. Man is ultimately his own God. Man could take stone. Man could take wood. He could take gold or iron. He could even make a digital creation in the metaverse. And I guarantee you that idol is going to be made in his image. Man makes an idol to reflect the very things he desires. Man is a king unto himself. That is how he lives. It is like the spirit of Israel in the time of Judges where there is no king in Israel. Every man did what is right in his own eyes. And that is reflective of our culture. Everywhere where God is not honored. What is there left to do but to do what is right in your own eyes? So man becomes a king unto himself. Here's another thing. God is still creator. He is still ruler ultimately over his own, over his own creation. And yet we see man try to usurp that. But also in the priesthood, we find now a perversion even in the priesthood. We don't serve based on God's commandments anymore, on His prescription, on His law, but based on our own assessment of society. That's how people live once you throw out God's design for the priesthood, for this royal priesthood where we are to serve in His presence, to obey Him, and to live by faith in Him, and by all the grace that He provides. Again, what happens when you get rid of that? Well, we just basically look at society and think, okay, what do we... But based on, based on my own tuition, based on my own wisdom, based on my own just gut feeling, or whatever have you, man says, this is what society needs. This is what culture needs to be better. Well, better based on what? Well, I don't know. Sound popular sentiment? The majority? The 51%? Can any number of things. And so he becomes a rogue priest, serving his own interests, serving even the interests of, of what the majority thinks is, is good and right and true. How about people? The people of God have received a purpose, received a calling. Again, to serve the Lord, to worship Him, to honor His name. But what happens when a people are not gathered in the name of the Lord? Instead of gathering to worship God and serve one another, we have basically, as history has proven, especially today, we have essentially subdivided ourselves into every different kind of community imaginable. I mean, just use your imagination. Fill in the blank community. We have the gay community. We have the transgender community. We have minority communities, majority communities, climate communities, the left community, the right community. We have drawn every line imaginable based on background, culture, color, sexual orientation, any kind of preference. Right. And the problem with that, of course, is that undermines the very thing that the Lord Jesus Christ came to do. Right? He came to make a new man. To put aside these things. Remember, he's like, there, un, un, under the new covenant community, there is neither slave nor free. Male nor female, right. Jew nor Gentile, Scythian, barbarian. What matters is faith in Jesus Christ. It's not that we're not different at all. It's that these differences that we have used throughout human history to, to oppose one another have been erased in Christ. Right? He knocked down the dividing wall so that we can come together as His new covenant people and worship together, serve together, and glorify His name. Consider the purpose as well. Now man's purpose is not to fill the earth with worshipers of God. We are filling the earth with glory thieves. 
so that man glorifies himself, pursues his own righteousness to make his own name great rather than to make the name of God great. It's interesting, we see this immediately in the Tower of Babel, if you guys are familiar with that story in the book of Genesis. Rather than scattering, and mind you, this is after the creation mandate is restated to Noah. Very graciously, very clearly. right? Be fruitful and multiply. Same command applies as it did with Adam. Scatter, subdue the earth. We know that. But instead, they gather together on the plains of Shinar into a community, and what do they say? Come, let us bake bricks. Let us make bricks. Let us build a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. The very thing that is opposed to God's purposes for man. One, only, we've talked about this before, only God can make a name great. Only God can pronounce greatness. It is outside of man's territory, outside of his purview, to make his own name great. He is called to make the name of God great. And as God says, those who humble themselves, I will exalt. Those who exalt themselves, I will humble. And so, what happens is that the Tower of Babel is built. And no matter how high man builds, he cannot make it up to God. Which clues us into a very important thing, very important truth, is that in order for earth and heaven to be one again, God actually has to come down. And what is happening here, and what makes this so tragic and yet so blasphemous and troubling, is that man still thinks that he can build a tower whose top is in the heaven, so that he can exalt himself. That's what the Tower of Babel is all about. Boy, if we, we, do we hear the same baloney today? Man, if we just, as human beings, just come together, man, if we just, you know, put our heads together, if we just put our differences aside, you know, no mention of God, no mention of grace, no, no mention of the gospel. It's just, if, as, if humanity comes together, we can achieve great things. We can make our name great. Right? In some sense, we can achieve paradise. We can achieve utopia. We can achieve heaven on earth. I can imagine that God laughs. But these puny human beings think that they are capable of such a thing. And note that even in this narrative of the Tower of Babel, what happens? God looks down. <laughs> no matter how high man builds a tower, he cannot reach up to God. God looks down and says, let us go down there. Right? Let us go down to see what they're doing. Let us confound their language. That's exactly what God does. He will not let his purposes, God will not let his purposes ever be thwarted. His name will be glorified in the earth. And then, of course, presence. What happens when man rebels God and forsakes his presence? Well, we see what happens in the garden. Man, the man and his wife are kicked out of the garden. They are cut off from the presence of God. And so what does man do? He says, Instead of repenting, why don't well, I'll just go and build a temple for myself? Right. And that's what man has done. We see these temples manifested in many ways today and even throughout history. This is part of corrupted creation that is really meant to tear down the work of God and man's image-bearing capacity. One way we see this, of course, is in universities. Right? That is a, they, they have effectively become temples of humanism. I'm not saying that all universities are useless, but what I am saying is that one cultural phenomenon that we have seen emerge in an in especially profound way today is that many universities have become temples of humanism. 
They have become temples where man can work toward becoming his own God and forging his own kingdom. And we put a lot of stock, almost an idolatrous stock in education. The man is so messed up, but the key is education. How many of you have been told after you've preached the gospel, hey man, get educated. Don't be preaching that Stone Age stuff to me. Get educated. I've heard it many times myself. As if education will clear up everything. As if I go to one of these temples of humanism, all will be made clear that I really don't need the Lord. That all I really need is to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and build my own kingdom and be my own God. And have my own temple. We also see it in abortion centers like Planned Parenthood. Again, defacing, defacing this image-bearing quality of God. We're destroying ourselves in that manner. And even though all of this is present, all of this is obvious, all of this is so counter to the new creation and even has its own new creation in mind, called utopia, no place, gotcha, we find, especially through the accomplishments of the Lord Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection, that God's purposes and His desire to be present and glorified among His people have in no sense been thwarted. And to hear how this solution, this whole circumstance, this whole circumstance is, is rectified and solved, we will wait till next Lord's Day because my time is up. But just know, I can't, I can't, I can't stop today without preaching the gospel to you. The good news is, is that God, through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, even now through the good news of the gospel, is making a new heaven and new earth. And it begins with Christ and His resurrection. He is the beginning of the new humanity. And all who put their faith and trust in Him by faith become new creations in Christ. And we are given this indomitable hope of taking part in that new heavens and new earth. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your love and faithfulness to us. Uh, barely got in our text this morning, but we are able to reflect on Your precious and great promises that You have given to us. And, and so profound, so sweeping and grand is this promise of a new heaven and new earth that we are even citizens of today. We are part of it today. And I, I just pray that we would be faithful to call others into it. To be a new creation, to, be, to, to come and fall at the feet of Christ to cry out for grace and to receive that grace in abundant measure, to become a new creation in Christ, to rest their hope fully in Him, and to share that hope that even, as, even though it's a present reality, that we will experience in its fullness with we as Your people and You as our God. And that we can rejoice in those promises together. Lord, we thank You, we praise You, and ask, us, and ask You to give us joy in that truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.